You're listening to Safety Unlocked. I'm Tim Neubauer. Our guest this segment is Dave Bittner. Dave, we're going to talk about uh, something that happened fairly close to where you grew up, at Three Mile Island in the incident that happened back in uh, 79. But before we jump in there, um, a lot of people say, hey, that was a, a really bad uh, nuclear potential disaster. And uh, thank goodness it wasn't um, uh, Chernobyl. But a lot of people don't know about something called SL1, which was a statutory low-power reactor number one outside of Idaho Falls, Idaho, back in uh, 1961. It actually blew up. Um, but because it happened at a military installation, um, it was it didn't make the kind of news that it should have, and it's never quite got the, the attention that it's had. Because we have, here in the United States, had a nuclear reactor power plant blow up. It was called SL1, uh, and it happened in 1961. But prior to that, uh, the Russians had a pre-Chernobyl Chernobyl, um, where they actually in 1957 had a, um, in September of 57, they actually had a nuclear reactor blow up. Um, and this was hidden from the world until after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, when people started suing, and they called them, um, uh, the, the name explosion, by the way, was the Kishtim explosion. And um, the lawsuits happened when um, when the children were asked to go out into the fields and pick up the green radioactive material and give it back to the Soviet Union. And um, those children suffered horrible cancer exposures. Um, and uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they started suing for uh, damages. And they call these people the, the liquidator children, um, which is a process they repeated again when Chernobyl went off. So so I wanted to to bring this up before we start talking about the, the Three Mile Island historical disaster that we had a 57 incident. We had a 61 incident right here in the United States. Uh, Three Mile Island happened in 79 and Chernobyl happened a couple of years after that. So we should have been learning from these events. And 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 our discussion is that we're not learning from these events and therefore we're destined to repeat them. Dave, talk a little bit about Three Mile Island uh, from your perspective. So uh, I'm kind of an old guy. So I was about 14 years old when that happened. And uh of course, it was a media sensation, and that's why you never heard of the 57 and 61 accidents, because uh, at the height of the Cold War, everything was buttoned down. Um, it was, you know, pre-Vietnam, um, and that's another that's another subject, but the, the Vietnam, there was a lot more media involvement in governmental matters um, than there were in the past, especially early in the Cold War. So in 79, it was a big deal. I grew up uh, in Levittown, Pennsylvania, about uh, an hour and uh, 40 minutes from uh, from where Three Mile Island took place um, on the Susquehanna River. Uh, so when you look at when you look at some of the facts and you look at what we were getting in the media back then, um, uh, the governor was uh, Dick Thornburg, and I actually remember Dick Thornburg because he was governor for quite a while. Um, and uh, of course, he was all over the news, so that made him more prominent. Um, so the story was was nothing was happening at first. They're like, "There's no danger. 
There's nothing really happening. Everybody's like, oh, cool. They got this thing contained. Well, it very quickly escalated. Um, and then it started to leak out in the news. Um, and it was, a, you know, so it, from our perspective, it was a sudden change. But now when you look back in history, it was not so sudden. They were having a lot of problems right from the beginning. So let's clarify what exactly was going on. There was, um, you've got the nuclear end of a reactor, then you've got the non-nuclear end. So nuclear reaction creates a thermal event heat. Uh, and then they have uh, pipes that run through that are isolated, contained, and non-nuclear that have a fluid in them. And it gets heated up, turns into steam, and moves a turbine. Uh, and in this case, um, what we have was an event at the non-nuclear side, which was the pressure. The heat was going up and the valves um, were the showing valves. that it went up. Only, but mm -hmm. they were limited, and the amount of water that was in the system was supposedly at the right level. So, so, and and as as the as you as heat rises, you put in more water to cool it down. Well, there's a point where if you have a 500 gallon container, and this is a a, a uh, an example, and I put in 300 gallons, I have 100 gallons of room for expansion for heat, mm -hmm. and um. And if I put in, if I says, gosh, it's getting hotter, hotter, and I put in another 50 gallons, I now only have 50 gallons of room for expansion. And, and if you put in the full 500 gallons, that's what they call going solid, which is there's no room for expansion, which leads to a big boom, which leads to, to a nuclear disaster. So that's kind of what was leading up to this is that they, they saw the temperatures rising a lot. Uh, and they thought that they had enough water in there. And at some point they stopped putting water in because they were worried about going solid. Uh, well, initially just... they, they thought they had enough water in because the, the instrumentation was inadequate and a valve was stuck open. So they were venting coolant into the chamber the whole time. And it wasn't, it wasn't going around the core anymore. Um, I think their, uh, uh, their heat indicators only went up to something like 700 degrees Fahrenheit and they were reaching uh 4000 degrees Fahrenheit and uh, at 5000 it goes critical and boom um so there were it, it was a comedy of errors it was uh the guys in the control room were not trained correctly um they had some they had some ideas about what to do based on the information they had but they were getting improper feedback they were relying on the instruments too much instead of uh instead of what they knew right so they weren't there were, they were looking at what was in front of them and not thinking critically as they should have been from the beginning which is a great point in uh, uh james child's book uh inventing disaster he talks about how we repetitively learn these lessons because we rely on on uh technology rather than than experience and i i think um in his book, he mentioned that if that same scenario of rising temperatures and potential <clears throat> water not not changing that or coolant not changing that, that if you would have presented that to a steam locomotive engineer in 1800s, they would have probably identified that in seconds flat as a valve that was stuck open. But they relied on the computer technology of the time. Sure, which in 1979 was not 
all that, right? A lot of blinking lights. They said there were over 2,000 um, controls and indicators in the control room. And the critical ones of, uh, I think it was uh, temperature and water level, or coolant level, excuse me, were not there. Um, I'm sure they're there now, or at least I would hope they are. <laughs> the... Um... The Fukushima nuclear power plant, uh, when the tsunami hit and the electrical panel failed, there had actually been a, an inspection a year previous um, um, that identified the the same that there was going to be a problem with the with the with the circuit breaker panel and restarting the generators a year before the tsunami happened, which triggered it. So that's not always a, a good indicator that that gosh, I hope they they fix that. Um, uh, I don't believe we have built a new uh, nuclear reactor since that happened. So 1979, if 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 uh, if my memory serves me right, and I wouldn't go on record um, saying that. So, um, um, yeah, I'm not sure if they built any or not since 79. But 79 is indeed when uh, the Three Mile Island incident occurred. Um, from what I understand now, the difference between Fukushima and what we have in the United States was that Fukushima did not have what they call a dry ice suspension over the reactor. Um, it's my I, I know somebody who worked at Duke at a power plant that's not far from from where I live now. Um, uh, he's a maintenance guy and he he told me they suspend 10 tons of dry ice. Um, which is constantly monitored over for a rapid shutdown, like a last-ditch effort shutdown to, to totally cool it. Um, I can't confirm nor deny that fact. I would have to read up on it some more, but uh, I think that's interesting. Um, they had the rods that they shoved down in there, which was uh, which was one of the problems at Chernobyl's, that the rods were not constructed correctly. Mm -hmm. um, I think they were... Um, don't quote me on this, but I think that the material they used was barium, maybe. Hmm. But uh, they, they said that they were not designed correctly at the Chernobyl incident, and they thought that it was going to shut the reactor down, and it did not. And it just got hotter until the until the the reactor exploded and the rods shot into the air like rockets. Was the description. So what are our lessons learned here, uh, especially from uh, Charles's point of view, is that we um, we relied on technology to answer questions when we should have been learning lessons and not losing that institutional knowledge of experience. From your perspective and reading this and doing your research prior to our podcast, what were you what are some of your lessons learned? Um. Yeah, the, the lessons learned is actually that there are so many commonalities in all these incidences, improper training, um, improper preparation, lack of critical thinking, uh, not taking the time to, uh, to, to do your, your root cause analysis. So what, what's causing the problem? Um, and eventually they did. I, you know, you got to give them credit. They, they did come around to the right answer. But it turns out in 1983, when they dropped cameras down in there, they said they were 30 to 60 minutes from that that ultimate disaster um, and lack of lessons learned. So you have these historical things and it, it should be 
part of the training. Um, this is what happened here, and these are the things you should look for. So I think improper training, too much relying on the technology, and, and as you said, that that loss of experience that you know you get these these silos of tribal knowledge where you know what you know where you know it. Right. So um, I'm going to end this segment by telling a great story about another book uh, that has nothing to do with with um, with Chernobyl, but talks a lot about uh, not relying too much on on technology, but about using that knowledge and that experience. I call it institutional knowledge. When someone leaves a craft or a trade, um, uh, you lose that that institutional knowledge. Uh, when we've had great uh, layoffs, the layoffs of uh, 2008, when we had the, the 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 recession, people left the construction industry, and the average term of of um, a construction worker at that point or skill level had been 20 years. And and when you look today, the average age uh, uh, length in trade is closer to five to 10 years. We lost all that knowledge. And the book that I'm going to talk about is actually written by uh, Nancy Conrad and uh, uh, and Howard Klausner. And it's about a gentleman named Pete Conrad. Now, Pete was an astronaut. Um, the name of the book is called Rocket Man. And Pete was a pilot. He was a naval aviator. He is a pilot. He is a guy who had his hand on the joystick. He he was the guy who flew. And um, the first time he got to ride a rocket into outer space in the Apollo program, he was actually the captain. Now, the captain is not the pilot. He's in charge of the pilot. Um, and every, in preparation for, for, the launch they ran through all these scenarios and you were talking about you know 200 lights going off um nasa would have these drills in a mock-up and they would create a scenario and these lights go on that lights go on and every time things got challenging pete would grab the manual control for an apollo rocket and the pilot would slap his hands and pete said in this book that his hands were black and blue and bloody at the end of the day because the pilot kept hitting his hands saying i'm the pilot you're the captain <laughs> and you know so 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 pete really had to be conditioned but on launch that spacecraft was hit by lightning during the launch and all 200 plus lights went off at the exact same time and the pilot raised his hands wow. and said all yours pete <laughs> and there was a there was a moment where according to the book rocket man that pete literally grabbed the control and manually kept that apollo spacecraft going straight up during launch uh there's more to that story of uh uh there was a voice in the background that says somebody pressed button like 184 and nobody knew where button 184 was and then a, a, a little arm came up from the second row the uh, the the one of the other uh, astronauts in there was the only one who knew that one button was press it and reset it. And the computer continued and, and the launch was successful. Uh, but that was just one of those things where we have lost institutional knowledge because we rely um, heavily on technology. And I don't want to, I, I say Luddite, you say Luddite. Uh, I, I am not one of those, those Luddites who's anti-technology. I'm just stating that we have repeated events that cause major significant safety uh, uh, 
deaths or or or, or near uh, 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 catastrophes like Three Mile Island because we we've lost that institutional knowledge because we rely on technology rather than skill of craft or trade or experience. So great topic on Three Mile Island. Uh, I'm Tim Neubauer. That was Dave Bittner, and you're listening to Safety Unlocked. You're listening to Safety Unlocked. I'm Tim Neubauer, and my guest host today is Dave Bittner. Dave, today's uh, or this segment's topic is uh, hot work and explosions. You would think that when you're cutting, sawing, welding, burning, that you would have a plan to prevent fires, or wouldn't you? Yeah, sometimes it's... uh... Sometimes it's the obvious things that people miss, like walking around a job site and uh, a guy's up in the ceiling and he, and, you know, he's throwing all kinds of sparks all over the place. And there is a uh, there is a crate of material with paper matter in it right below. Him. Right. It's like you're about to become a grilled vegetable if uh, if you continue that kind of work. Yes. And I've had clients that have had fires that occurred hours and hours and hours after the fire watch should have uh, uh, time had expired. And uh, in multiple occasions, there was high winds and they left the fire blankets in place to protect the thing uh, that they were working on. But to me, the most incredible talking point here, and this is in uh, Port of Beirut, which is outside the United States where uh, um, in um, 2021, uh, there was a fire um, that killed 218 people, uh, injured more than 7,000. Um, as bad as those numbers are, 70,000 apartments were impacted and 300,000 residents were forced to move out of their their um, their houses or apartments. The total cost is estimated at between 3.8 and 4.6 billion with a b billion dollars and and it's amazing that this is a hot work event where they didn't have their their uh, uh permits and their processes in place but we should have already known or they should have already known uh this going on and um here in the US back in uh, 1965 there was a Searcy missile silo where uh there was some work going on in a missile silo and um they were welding with a Titan II missile in the silo. Now they removed the nuclear warhead, um, but when the fire happened, it actually killed 53 people. Or um, out of there was 55 workers in the silo. 53 of them died from the fire from um, from welding hot work operations. I mean, it's it's a lesson we still have not learned, and. Um, this is where pre-task planning is so important, right? Knowing what's in the area, uh, look, surveying the area, what are the possible hazards, what are the conditions you're working in, you know, and if you're in a closed environment, you know, have you checked the atmosphere? Yeah, uh, it, it really is. And if, if I could go to another one, the Chemical Safety Board, which, by the way, folks, if you're not com- uh, familiar with the csb.gov that's chemical safety board for your military people that's charlie sierra bravo.gov 
these guys, this this branch of the government puts out amazing investigations and videos. Um, and they were uh, recently uh, working on a CSB report for the El Dorado, Arkansas uh, fatal hot work explosion, uh, which is back in uh, 2012, when uh, when a company was welding and cutting on a uh, container that they thought was inert, empty, and non-explosive. And um, because we're talking about it, it wasn't. Um, and they actually recently released, uh, about the time of that 2012, um, a 2010 explosion where they put the seven key lessons to prevent worker deaths during hot work around a te- uh, tanks. And it's a great video to watch, even though it's 13 years old, uh, talking about hot work. And and Dave, to just to, to reiterate, reiterate what you said is, in order for a hot work to proceed, you need to consider everything around you have a plan have blankets have ventilation have fire watch i mentioned that uh two events uh from uh, uh former clients of mine were fires that occurred hours i'm talking six seven eight hours after the hot work had been done um uh, but there were high wind days um considering when you're doing when you're doing um hot work what the weather conditions are what they will be in the next 24 hours afterwards um, to to say, hey, I'm going to leave the fire watch up there for 24 hours rather than one or two hours. Uh, hot work blankets, encapsulation. Um, do I need to be doing the work? Can I can I do other things? Fire blankets. Those are all those part of those uh, consideration. And and I think it's amazing that OSHA has almost no guidance on what a hot work permit should look like. So it's kind of we're we're back to the. Uh, to the National Fire Protection folks, the NFPA folks looking for guidance or uh, uh, doing things like that. Um, thoughts on uh, on what we should be doing to prevent future hot work fatalities, um, well, disasters? You know, you do, do your due diligence. Don't assume anything. Um, I'm looking at one where a welder welder dies and seven injured in an explosion that could have been prevented because in last year july 2022 in jackson mississippi um the young man failed to fill the tank with salt water as was prescribed by normal procedure um and he started the weld and the tank exploded um and unfortunately a 25 year old young man lost his life and seven others were injured um know your work i mean uh Check the area out. Make sure there's no flammables around, um, and and have your fire watch. That means have a fire watch who's actually watching. That's their dedicated job. That they are not doing anything else. That they're not playing on their phone. That they're keeping their eyes out for stray sparks that could hours later, in windy conditions like you said, Tim, um, cause tragedy or disaster. Um, even if nobody's there, I mean, the cost can be incredible for for a job site or for a plant or any other industry um, in the event of a fire. So um, uh, the NFPA has a publication out uh, from 2021, so it's fairly recent, where they said that the uh, U.S. fire departments respond to an average of 450, well, I'm sorry, 4,580 structure fires that involve hot work permits over a four-year period, um, causing 22 deaths, 171 civilians injured, and $484 million in direct property damage. 
43% of those occurred in or on home building or uh, one or two family uh, uh, dwellings. 58% occurred in uh, non-home properties. That, that Those numbers are, are, are staggering uh, at the cost of that. Um, five firefighters also were killed fighting those, those uh, unintentional fires set by hot work. Um, one of the things that people need to understand is hot work isn't a flame. Okay, uh, uh, hot work is is anytime you produce heat or a spark, which um, um, using a heat gun to heat up a surface where it's just a heating element is a form of hot work. If you are grinding and a spark is created, that's hot work. It's not just a big old rosebud torch used to cut through metal. It could be grinding, could be arc welding, could be torch welding. Those are all forms of hot work. Yeah, and we don't need to get we don't need to get numb to these conditions because we do them all the time. Um, I think that's where a lot of complacency comes about when someone's been been grinding and welding and heating things for for long periods of time, and it's always been okay, but it only takes that one time that it's not okay um, to have a fire or an explosion, and just you know, as I say. Every once in a while, we have to kick ourselves in, in our complacency and realize that uh, hazards always exist. Long before we get to the part where we're talking about the statistics. Um, yeah, so so for the preventative measures of what lessons have we learned moving forward is have a plan. Uh, don't go for minimum compliance, go for maximum uh protection which means that you don't want a 30 minute fire watch you might want a two hour fire watch um planning 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 and if there's a permit system use it live by it um um and focus on training and awareness sure if there's a site specific plan it may have uh, uh special guidelines to follow under the conditions of where you're working. So say you're a contractor working in a um, in a food factory where they're making kibble or something, you may not know that the kibble has explosive dust and that you need to maybe fill a tank or wet down an area or whatever it may be. So it's important that you get that hot work permit, you understand the conditions you're working in, you fill everything out appropriately. Right. Explosive dust is going to be another one of our uh, podcasts where we're going to talk about some uh, pretty significant ones and and how uh, uh, people basically minimized uh, um, that and any kind of spark at all will will cause um, what would have been a normal, easy to put a fire to turn into a huge, huge explosion. So uh, great topic. We haven't spent a lot of time on it. We're going to uh, uh, go ahead and wrap it up right here. I'm Tim Neubauer, and this is Safety Unlocked with my co-host, Dave Bittner. You've been listening to Safety Unlocked, a podcast for safety people by safety people. Brought to you by Exceed Safety. Visit our website at exceedsafetyllc.com or call us at 919-728-SAFE. Safety LLC